Welcome to the 44th episode of the New Ventures Podcast. I'm your host, Sanjoy Sanyal, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. I host the New Ventures Podcast to help people starting climate initiatives learn from others who have already progressed in their past. Our guest for today is Emily Van Poringi, founder of Oddbox. Oddbox is tackling food waste. What it does is it rescues delicious fresh fruit and vegetable deemed too big, too ugly, wrong color, or just sometimes just too many or going to waste. And then it boxes them up to sell it to consumers. This topic is very important for us because this solution really helps solve the climate crisis and at the same time prevents or at least helps mitigate the cost of living crisis that we are seeing all over the world. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Very glad to be on the podcast. Enjoy. Emily, let's start by from the consumer end. If I have to sign up for Oddbox's subscription, what should I do? And I get a box, right? But how should I sign up for the box? Yeah, so it's quite a, an easy subscription model where you can go on the website. So we have selection of different boxes. So whether it's veg only or fruit and veg boxes in different sizes, and then you can sign up to the box which you feel fits better in terms of the number of people in your household. And actually, it's quite flexible. People can skip any boxes they need if they are going on holidays, or they can downgrade or upgrade if they want to change the box size or pause for a bit of time or make any changes to their subscription at any point of time. So it's it's a flexible type of subscription. And in addition, when people receive their box, sometimes it can feel a bit overwhelming to receive something like a big cabbage or some fruit that you've never eaten. So we always include recipes, tips, as well as kind of a bit of a booklet when people sign up to help them on their journey to rescuing food at risk of going to waste. And then, obviously, we talk about the growers. Let's say a person who runs a farm. How should they contact Oddbox? So they can contact us directly through our website. However, most of the growers are people that we might know through our network or who might be referred to us by other growers. So we now work with over 70 different fresh produce suppliers who have actually a network of over 500 farms, both in the UK and abroad. So the specificity of our model is that unlike anybody else in the industry, we never ask growers to grow for us. Everything we take has actually been grown for somebody else. So it was destined for a different outlet. So whether it's retail, whether it's food services, and we're actually taking produce, which either, as you mentioned, actually surplus. So there's been a change of order or the weather has been better and there's been a crop flush or there's been kind of any other changes in the order or produce, which might be out of specs. So quite often it's too big, too small, skin markings, cosmetic imperfections, which means that it's going to be rejected by their main customer. So now that we've understood what you do, I think what we really want to understand is, you know, why food is wasted and how your solution is tackling the root causes. And of course, you already started talking about it because you are not asking your grower. And I think that's very unique to grow only for you. It's food grown for somebody else and that food is rejected. Could you tell us a bit about the causes of rejections? I think you've started talking about it anyway. If you were not there, what would 
the grower have done? Yes, so just maybe to start in terms of overall, the issue of food waste is massive. So globally, 2.5 billion tons of food is wasted every year, and that accounts to 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions. So solving the food waste problem goes a long way towards solving our climate crisis. And its environmental impact is actually bigger than plastic. So that's something that a lot of people don't know. But food waste has been identified by Project Drawdown as the number one addressable solution to tackle the climate crisis. And it's also something that actually everybody can do, can contribute to in their daily life. So a lot of food is wasted in people's homes. So we buy too much, we have something in our fridge, but don't feel like cooking that specific things or um, it's gone out of date. So 50% of the waste actually happens in people's homes, but then big proportion also happen at farm level. And what that means is that all the land and water which has been used to produce this food is actually also wasted. And that's kind of for us, what we're addressing currently is that waste happening at farm level. And so in terms of reasons for food being wasted or being surplus, because in some ways it's not wasted at farm level, it's surplus at that point at farm level. In the past, we've rescued apples which had been damaged from hail. So actually when they were tiny apples, when they were still growing, there was huge hailstorm and it created small dots on the outer skin of the apple, which didn't impact the eating quality, but it impacted how the apple looked. And kind of when it grew, it had tiny, tiny specks in the skin. And so supplier contacted us saying that the retailer they had grown the apples for had rejected almost the whole field because of this hail damage. And so we actually took these apples and think about our model is because we are direct to consumers. We can explain why uh, people receive these apples and actually how much they are helping the growers by eating these apples. And so for us, we've got the ability to put a letter in the box, which explains these apples are in your box because they were rescued after being damaged by a hailstorm. And actually small, the skin markings has no impact on the eating quality. They are just as good, but they don't necessarily look exactly the same. And so that's kind of the beauty of having a direct-to-consumer model, that we've got a way for people to understand what's happening. In some cases, it's really good. There's a lot of water, there's a lot of sun. And we've had, for example, a lot of broccoli recently, which has been surplus. So a grower never wants to run out of produce for their main consumer. So they'll always plan to grow a bit extra. And so that means that some years they are kind of at 95% of what they were they needed to grow. Some years they have kind of 20% surplus. Some years they don't have much surplus. And so our model is quite flexible. We'll take if there is surplus, if there's no surplus, then we work with different growers. And obviously we don't grow everything we eat in the UK. So there's a lot of produce which are imported. And when there's a change in season, so again, if we take, for example, apples will be harvested in September and then they will be stored and there will be UK apples almost till the end of March and then they switch to importing from mainly New Zealand but it might be that the switch of season is not happening as per planned so there might be still some UK apples available in March, while the retailer has already committed to taking apples from New Zealand. So what we call the shoulder of the seasons, there's quite often surplus in one country or the other. There's a lot of reasons 
for actually the surplus or kind of the fact that something is out of spec. If the recent weather has been quite challenging in terms of having very little rain and a lot of sun in the summer, and that means that some of the crops have grown a lot smaller than what they should have, and therefore they don't meet the size specs that the retailers have set. And so it will be different for different produce, but it will be also changing year on year. You know, Emily, listening to you, not only is food waste a big cause of greenhouse gas emissions, so it's a climate problem, but actually the way you are speaking makes it clear that the problem is going to become worse because of climate change. So all the examples that you gave of extreme events like hailstorm or the unseasonal flowering or different weather patterns in different parts of the world are all examples of climate events which will actually become worse. And therefore, the problem of food waste is going to become worse. That's one thing that I'm taking away. But I also wanted to understand a little bit about retailer practices. You know, obviously, retailers want, the supermarkets want, good-looking, correct-size apples and oranges and fruits and vegetables on the shelves. Can you elaborate on this specifications issue that creates food waste? Yes. So initially, actually, the specs were not set for based on what they thought consumers expected. They were set to have a good enough level of quality, but then that drove a lot of standardization. And for example, in the UK, we are used to grapes, which is very green, whilst in mainland Europe, they like the grape to be slightly more yellow, because that means that there's more sugar in the grape. So there are some things which will be kind of consumer taste and consumer behavior, which quite often has been driven by retailer practices. So if we're used to seeing green grapes, very green, then that's what we, we enjoy eating. And we think that the yellow ones pass their best. If we're used to yellow grapes, then we enjoy more of the sweetness of the yellow grapes and we're fine with the color. There's also something which is around packaging. So for example, it's a lot easier to have five apples of 200 grams in a one kilo pack than apples which are all different weight. And similarly for cucumber, so the cucumber wrapping machine will only take straight cucumbers. And again, in terms of the logistics, it's a lot easier to kind of transport produce which are of similar size or pack produce of similar size in cardboard boxes than produce which have different sizes. So there's a bit which is kind of people, retailers thinking that consumers will have specific expectations. Obviously, as consumers, we shop with our eyes. So if something looks more appealing, then we'll mainly choose the produce which is more appealing. So there's kind of there's some truth in kind of why they are selecting a specific type of produce and rejecting others because they know that consumers will choose the most appealing one. And there's some parts which are driven by efficiency of logistics, efficiency of packaging, and efficiency of operations. And our model 
in some ways means that we can avoid all that because people don't choose what goes in their box. And therefore, when they open their box, they are not looking at the apples in their box versus apples which are just next to them and whether the ones in the box are looking better than the other ones. They just receive the apples and then they get the story about the apples. And so there's it's an easier model because people expect that actually the produce might not necessarily look the same as what they would shop at a retailer. Right. So my question would be that a farmer grows a certain amount of tomatoes and then the tomatoes don't come up to the specs that the retailer wants. What happens to the tomatoes? They're just chucked away? That You've already talked about the water usage that goes in, but all the money that goes in, is that all wasted? So that's a really, a really good question. And that's something that we're being asked quite often. So it's not as straightforward or simple. It depends on the produce. So growers don't want to waste any of the produce that they've grown. They are, they've put a lot of labor, they've put kind of a lot of money into growing the produce. So they'll always try to find an outlet for the produce. And so not all of the things that we take would definitely have ended up in landfill. And actually a lot of growers have a no landfill policy, but it might have gone to the wholesale market. However, there's no surety of being able to sell the produce in the wholesale market. The price that is offered is not always kind of the best and sometimes don't even cover the cost of growing the produce. Sometimes it goes for animal feed. Again, animal feed don't pay much. For some of the crop, which are sometimes they will be able to sell it to somebody else because they would have access to different customers, so food services. So they'll always try to kind of sell it. Sometimes, basically, they'll decide not to harvest a part of the crop. And so it will stay in the field. And growers don't call that waste. They say it's natural fertilizer. However, the crop was meant to be eaten, not being used as natural fertilizer. So it's not always easy for us to know exactly what would have happened to the produce, because quite often they will reach out to us as maybe kind of the best, one of the best secondary outlets. And then if we hadn't been there, they might have reached out to somebody else. Would they have been able to sell the produce or not? It's an impossible question to answer on the basis that they've offered it to us. But we know that in some cases, it stayed in the field. We know that, for this, for example, for these ale-damaged apples, that they were rejected by the retailer. Does it mean that they would have ended up in landfill? Probably not. They would have tried to sell it to somebody else. But they were meant for the retailer. And, and so for us, that's what's important. Actually, it's things which were meant for a market and we're able to offer a secondary market, which is flexible. So that means that if they don't have surplus, then they don't have a commitment to supply us and that we're paying them what we believe is a fair price. So we always aim to pay them at least the cost of growing the crop. I was looking through the case studies. You know, you have a really nice website, you know, lovely blogs. And I was looking, one example that stood out was where a retailer wanted to introduce a new type of apple. I think it was a new type of green apple and then suddenly changed their mind. And you said that's something that happens quite a bit. Yeah, so retailers will always try to introduce new varieties. So growers will grow experimental crops and usually it's small volumes. And so they will sell some of that to the retailer, hoping that consumers will like that new product. But 
it's still experimental, so there's no assurance that the consumer will want the new product. So that's where quite often we'll also end up, end up taking some of these experimental crops because our volume are also a lot lower than what a retailer would be. So for us, it kind of actually works to take these smaller volumes. So I'll try and sum up this section. What I heard you say is that the one main reason why food waste happens and growers don't necessarily call it food waste. They're obviously trying you know, multiple things to use it. Sometimes even just use it as fertilizer on their fields or finding alternate markets, using it as animal feed. So we know that it's not necessarily called food waste, but it does not reach the price. So it does not give the farmer the remuneration that is expected because of one reason that uh, retailers uh, have very clear specifications of color and size and that often comes not just because consumers want things of a particular size but also just because of the efficiencies of automation in the supply chain of food and the other issue is of course that climate change is going to make the problem even worse because we will have extreme events where fruit or vegetable will have to be harvested before its time or it'll flower later or it'll flower later in another country when food is still available in the UK. So there are multiple reasons why climate change will exaggerate this problem. And what you're doing is because you are not asking farmers to grow only for you, you have the flexibility to pick that material up and give them at least the cost of growing the fruit and vegetable. That's what I've kind of picked up from this section of our discussion. I think obviously it's creating a lot of impact. That's where we, I'll start. You started in 2016, right? And you worked through the pandemic. You know, where have you reached today? Yes, we started in 2016 and obviously we've grown quite a lot during the pandemic with people cooking more at home, with obviously everybody wanting everything to be delivered to their door when it was difficult to go in store. So we've now delivered over 6 million boxes and rescued over 35,000 tons of produce at risk of going to waste. When we started in 2016, we started in one small area in South London. Since then, we now close to 70% of the UK households and we have over 75,000 active subscribers. So we've grown a lot and quite rapidly. And that's on the kind of Obviously, COVID has helped us, but there's a huge increase in people being aware of, obviously, the issue of climate change and people wanting to do something about it and people really kind of questioning their action and knowing that their action have a lot of impact. So people are changing their purchasing behavior to buy from better businesses and to actually promote better practices. And that's what we're, for us, that's also what's really important is that We've moved to becoming such a demand-driven society where we want to have everything available all the time, available immediately. And when you go to the store, there's shelves full of food and you expect that things will be available all the time and that you should never run out of anything if you go to the supermarket. What we're trying to shift is actually... What creates waste is that demand-driven society, the fact that we need to make sure that there's more supply than demand. We need to shift that to shopping and eating in a much more flexible manner and uh, being happy to, to get produce that you don't choose and having to be creative, having to be innovative in terms of cooking with what's available. That requires a major societal shift. And 
in our view, that actually the only way will truly solve the issue of food waste. It's not by us providing kind of that band-aid in terms of, we believe we are a very useful band-aid in the fact that we're kind of acting as a secondary market to take any of the produce that are surplus that need a home. But in some ways, if people are happy to be more flexible, then we should adjust our consumption based on what's available and not be asked for everything to be available all the time. I think this is absolutely correct. And 75,000 customers, congratulations, that's quite a lot of uh, people, actually. Is there a typical customer? Are they like younger couples who are starting home or are they older people? I know you did a crowdfunding equity raise. Did the people who invest in your company become customers? Just tell us a little bit about these stories. Yeah, in terms of our customer, so when we started, we were advertising quite a lot locally with at local fairs, at kind of family outings. And so we started with mainly kind of family audiences that shifted quite a lot with attracting younger audiences really care about the climate crisis or really care about the world that they're living in. And so the Outbox proposition appeals a lot to younger people. We also have a kind of older people who actually want to do their bit for the planet. So we've got quite a mix. I would say what's the common thread within that all of these customers is that its people are quite confident cooks. So who are happy to receive a different type of produce, so more seasonal produce, who are happy to kind of experiment in the kitchen and cook with whatever comes in the box. And also people who kind of really want to support a world which is more sustainable. So people who are who have quite a strong sustainability focus, but also people who are quite confident cooks. But in terms of age, in terms of gender, it's quite mixed. So we've got a lot of people across gender, across age, and we've got a lot of customers in London as well as outside of London. Your crowdfunding campaign, did it help in getting customers or did they feed into each other at all? So actually it was a bit of a bit of that, but a bit of the opposite. So in 2018, we did a small crowdfunding campaign and we raised half a million pounds. And some of that we had raised upfront from angel investors and the rest we raised from 500 investors through the crowdfunding campaign. Half of them were already Outbox customers. So we had a lot of customers who obviously really believe in our mission and wanted to support our growth and invested in Outbox. So we got a bit of brand awareness of investors who signed up to Outbox, but we also got a lot of our existing customers who invested in Outbox. Well, you know, nothing like customers becoming investors. 75,000 customers. You know, what's the volume of fruits and vegetables do you deliver on a weekly basis? Is there a trend there? So we do around forty to 50,000 boxes a week, and a box is on average 7 kilo of fruit and veg. Okay, you know, I'm a customer, I sign up. Your typical customer, can she or he expect the entire week's supply come from Autobox? Or do you think, does typically they have to make some runs to the supermarket? So we have a lot of customers who use Autobox exclusively for their supply of fruit, weekly fruit and veg. We have also a lot of customers who will do small top-ups for the fruit and veg that they are not getting in their boxes. So it very much depends on their family habits. So for example, for people with young children, they might want only specific veg 
for their children, or they might want the same veg that their children eat. So typically carrots, broccoli, so things that kind of children enjoy best. If it doesn't come in that week's box, so they might top up with that. And similarly, in terms of the fruit, they might not always get all of the fruit that they need. So quite often people will top up, but we also have people who actually batch cook and will use only whatever they have in their boxes. It's quite varied. Right. And I think the point that you made earlier that people have to adjust. You can't be what you call a demand driven all the time. You know, as my grandmother would say, you can't have everything you want for all the time. So you're trying to change customer behavior as well. Obviously, you've already mentioned that people who are confident cooks, but at the same time, conscious of the climate. But do people save money from buying from you? So in terms of our pricing, we are not cheaper than retail. Depending on the box size, if we exclude the cost of the delivery, then we're on par. If we compare to the discounters, we're more expensive. It very much depends in the context that a veg box will typically encourage people to eat more fruit and veg than if people kind of eat more fruit and veg. We feel that they probably kind of get good value for money if they cook more at home compared to buying ready meals, going out, doing takeaways, then they can save money. But in terms of straight pricing, it's probably on par. Uh, if it's a small box, it might be more expensive than a retailer. If it's a bigger box, it's end up being cheaper. But overall, uh, cooking and eating at home, and it's a better way to make sure that you cook nutritious meals, that you eat more in season, that you have a diet which is more varied. Because otherwise, when anybody, when you and I shop at the supermarket, we typically will buy the same type of produce. So before Oddbox, I don't think I had ever bought a full cabbage at the supermarket. Now I regularly cook full cabbages when it's in season. It's a way to kind of expand your repertoire of cooking of recipes and eating things which are more seasonal, eating kind of different types of produce as well. Right. It's nutritious food. So you are probably saving some money if you are not eating out or picking up what I call microwave dinners. On the grower side, you compensate or at least try and compensate them for the cost to produce. So would it be safe to assume that you have impacted incomes at that level? That's fair assumption. In terms of facts, it's very difficult for us to get financial information from growers in terms of what kind of what are their costs been and how much more income we've generated from them. However, we did a survey a few months ago and all of our growers said that we've actually contributed to increasing their income. And 100% of them also said that we've contributed to reducing waste. But in terms of actual data, it's very difficult to get the exact financial data in terms of how much more profit they've made from working with us. Right. And which brings me to one question. I mean, since there is no predictability of whether I will have surplus, are there growers who work with you regularly or it's kind of random? They will, in four years, they'll come back once or twice when they have surplus. So it's a mix. So for example, for crops, which are more all year round crops, like potatoes, which get stored, or growers who have farms in different places in the world, then they always have some level of surplus. It might change in terms of the type of crop. So it might be that if it's a brassica grower, sometimes it's cabbage, sometimes it's broccoli, sometimes it's cauliflower. And so we'll take one or the other most of the year or kind of part of the year. We also work with, for example, UK asparagus growers and the UK asparagus season is only 
two months in a year. So we work with these growers only for two months in a year. And if they don't have anything, then we won't work with them. So that's why we've got such a huge network of growers that we work with. Some of them we work with regularly. Some of them we'll work with only if they have surplus. Some of them at different times of the year. Obviously, I mentioned this. I wanted to really interview you because of the business that you run in the context of not only circular economy, but also in the context of the cost of living crisis. And one thing that struck me as particularly important is that you also work with charities to get food in the hands of people who need it the most. Yeah. And actually, that's been from the very start when we set up Outbox that we've been doing that. And the main reason we started working with charities wasn't because we wanted to tackle food poverty because our mission is around food waste. It's subscription-based. We know how many orders we'll have to deliver on a weekly basis. On that basis, we plan our boxes and we'll get the mix of, so our sourcing team will contact our growers, understand what's available, what's surplus, and place orders on that basis with our growers. But there's always changes between what we plan and the actual orders that we have to deliver. And so from the start, we've always had some surplus that actually we didn't feel it was right to throw away that surplus, put it in the bin. And so at the the very start, I contacted one of the food poverty charity and asked them whether they would be keen on getting any of our surplus. And so we now work with several of them. And so every week they come to our our warehouse, pack house, and and they take any of the surplus that we have. And so for us, it's been also kind of, it's a great way of making sure that actually as an organization tackling food waste, we don't generate any waste ourselves. And that any of the produce that we have remaining, which is good enough for people to reach people. So, you know, just in terms of numbers, you know, how many charity partners you can work with today? How many people you can get food to? So we work with three different charity partners. In terms of numbers, I think this year alone, we've enabled over 200,000 meals to be served with Outbox Fruit and Veg. I think that's obviously extremely creditable. And again, I, I just thought at one point you mentioned that as a company combating food waste, you are conscious of your own waste as well. And one of the things that struck me is that you measure your emissions, right? Often for a small company, that is quite a difficult challenge. So maybe we can end the podcast by you telling us how you measure your own emissions and what you do to reduce them. Yeah. So we signed up to being a B Corp over three years ago, and that was actually a way for us to get external audit from another organization to look at our practices. So not only about in terms of carbon footprint, but also in terms of governance, in terms of how we treat our employees, in terms of how we work with our community and making sure that actually we commit to improving on that. Because B Corp, it's not only a score that you get once, there's a requirement to recertify every three years and there's a requirement to improve on your score every three years when you recertify. So it's a continuous improvement process. And as part of that, then we committed to tracking our emissions. And so we've got a day of impact with an impact analyst, and they look at the carbon emission of our deliveries, the carbon emission of getting the produce from the farm to the park house, the carbon emission of our offices. So they kind of have a methodology to track all of that. 
and to look at in what is the carbon footprint per box and how do we work to reduce that carbon footprint. So for example, we've, so we don't do the delivery ourselves. We use a third-party delivery partner with whom we've been working very closely from the start and we're now starting to transition to electric vehicles with them because a big part of our carbon footprint is actually the impact of our deliveries. So all our packaging is recyclable, so it's cardboard, so that goes into making new boxes. We're looking at how we can move to reusable boxes. We're looking, so there's a lot of other things that we're doing in terms of how we receive the produce through recyclable trays instead of in cardboard boxes. So there's several initiatives that we have around how we improve our own sustainability and how we show that actually we can be uh, what we call as a business for good, but also a good business. And your impact analyst consultant, they help you measure these emissions and also identify technical solutions to reduce it. Yes, we've worked with external consultants, impact consultants, to actually identify what's the best way for us to track all of our emissions. And we look at scope one, scope two, scope three. So scope one and two are what is within our control. Scope three is working with our suppliers. And we've worked out with them a strategy to reduce our emissions over time. And so we don't have, so we're looking at science-based target to make sure that actually we're not just committing to something without having a proper plan. So we've, so we're looking to reduce our emission by 7% every year over the next at least five years. And then we'll relook at how we do that. So 7% doesn't seem very big, but it actually requires quite a lot of effort to reduce by 7% year on year. So for us, it's all about taking these small t- steps, which over time will add up to quite a lot. Right. 7%, but also it's on a growing volume, right? So your volumes would grow. Today, you have 75,000 customers that would grow. So it is quite creditable, actually. And congratulations as well. I think I'll sum up the podcast in the following way, is that we talked a little bit about surplus food gets wasted at the farmer level is because of the needs for efficiency in this food supply chain. And of course, because of deficiencies, supermarkets can get us fruits and vegetables at low cost. So because you have you are picking up food that is otherwise not going to go to the supermarket, not going to go to the retailer, you may not necessarily be able to price your food as cheaply as, as a supermarket can, especially for small volumes. But what you can do is to help consumers have more healthy lifestyle, perhaps more family-oriented lifestyle. People couples cooking, teaching children how to cook, and that's all valuable. And obviously, as you cook yourself and not pick up microwave dinners, you tend to save. And again, as it is very difficult to get numbers from viewers, but it's, I think, very clear from what you said that you do add value. And, you know, they say value in the service that you provide, which is why they come back to you. I'm sure the value is in terms of, of the money they would have otherwise lost because they did not come to you. These are all very important things. Uh, What I think we should also talk about at the end of this podcast is the work that you do with charities. Obviously, incredible numbers there, especially in this very difficult year. And of course, your total commitment to its science-based targets and scope one, scope two, and scope three emission reduction, which are, again, very hard for a small company.
Emily, one last question. And if people want to connect with you because you're doing such an interesting business, uh, how should they? So they can connect with me through LinkedIn or they can reach out to me directly through our website and other social media as well. And very keen to connect with other people who are equally committed to that fight to, for a better future. So in terms of our website, it's oddbox.co.uk. So with that, thank you very much, Emily. Thank you very much for having me, Sanjoy. I really enjoyed the discussion. If you like this podcast, do visit us on regainparadise.org, regainparadise.com. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, and you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and YouTube.